Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. I'm Dr. Jessica Young. I'm the Maternal Medical Director for the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. And I am here today with Dr. Laura Sorabella. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Dr. Sorabella is a assistant professor at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and her specialty is obstetric anesthesiology, and she has a special interest in pain management for our moms with opioid use disorder, and that's what we're here to talk with her about today is that management of pain for the opioid-dependent pregnant person during labor and postpartum. So thank you so much for coming and sharing your expertise. It's really great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about what brought you to obstetric pain management as your career choice in anesthesiology and what particularly interests you about the patient with opioid use disorder. Well, let's see. So I initially thought that I would go into obstetrics. I I really loved it. My rotations in medical school were just phenomenal. And I fell in love with the field. And it wasn't until really late in my medical school courses that I was introduced to anesthesia. And so I actually had my applications filled out for both, like, up until the very end, all my letters, all of my sub-I's were done kind of like in an even split. And I made the last minute decision to go into anesthesia. So I think the decision to do obstetric anesthesia was so easy for me because it was it was exactly two halves of what my passions were in medical school. So when I found out that there was a fellowship in OB anesthesia, it was it was a no brainer for me. I always sensed that you were a kindred spirit in, the, in terms of obstetrics, so that makes a lot of sense. I'm glad I asked about that. What is particularly challenging about managing someone's pain who has opioid use disorder? I think just really understanding that it's not just one aspect of the pain that we're trying to control, that they're that there's the pain itself from whatever surgical stimulus or procedure was done, but there's also everything that happened in that person's life surrounding procedures or medical experiences that they bring with them into that moment. And I think they're also bringing a lot of anxiety and and maybe some post-traumatic stress disorder, whether it's diagnosed or not. And it's treating that whole person and all of those emotions and all of those diagnoses 
on top of that pain experience. And that can be really challenging because you have about five minutes to get to know that patient and convince them that you have their best interests at heart and that you are going to really work with them to get through this experience. It's I, I really like that challenge. I, I think that it's a patient population that really deserves our attention and the stakes are really high. So I just have been kind of like gravitating towards that with my career and, and where I've directed my research because I find it really rewarding. In the past 10 or so years since I've been taking care of pregnant people with opioid use disorder, I've really seen a shift in terms of how their pain management during labor is talked about and addressed. And I feel like initially when I started working with this patient population, it was acknowledged that that it was hard to control people's pain um, when they have a dependence on opioid or, or tolerance or have a history of trauma and all these things. But there was almost a sense of like, eh, we can't do anything about it. It's <laughs> like we we it's it's going to be hard. It, it's it's not going to we can have a limited number of things. But I feel like that's really changed in in the past few years in terms of people really being interested in optimizing pain control, but also looking at different modalities and really addressing multimodal pain control. Has that been talked about in anesthesia circles? Is this a kind of a new area of interest for? Yeah, I, I think that you're right. It was it was kind of glossed over for, a, not that I've been doing anesthesia for that long, but even earlier in my career, I just remember people saying, this patient is on buprenorphine, we're going to take her for cesarean, it's going to be really challenging to get good pain control postoperatively. And it was just like a challenge that was just laying there in the room. But I feel like over the last 10 years, we've really made some great strides. And we've got a lot of people to thank for that. I think that what really led us to that point is just how prevalent the opioid use disorder has been in our communities. And especially here at Vanderbilt, we see an incredible number of women that are coming in to deliver that are diagnosed with opioid use disorder. And so that's really been the motivator for my team here because we just we felt like we were tired of saying, oh, it's going to be challenging. We wanted to really find a way to solve that challenge. And we felt like we had a lot of tools in our toolbox that we could potentially use. And, and so that's why we developed the protocol that we currently have here, which I'm excited to share. I think I told I told you that some of our early, early data is going to be presented at a conference this spring in Chicago about just looking at what patients' pain scores, their satisfaction scores, how much morphine equivalents they were requiring in-house after cesarean delivery. We were looking at before and after the protocol rollout, so something very simple did we have any impact with this variety of interventions that we packaged all together? 
And I think I was hopeful for really good outcomes, but we were all really, really surprised when the numbers came back from our statistics team. I love that you segued to that because that was the next question I was going to ask you was about your QI project for the obstetric anesthesia team on optimizing pain management for people who have cesarean sections and who are on medication-assisted treatment or who have opioid use disorder. So can you tell us what were the different elements of that project? What were the interventions that the anesthesia team implemented? So some of them were really strict switches. So instead of using a medication that we always put in the intrathecal space, which is the spinal space for people listening who aren't familiar with that term, we usually, for anybody having a cesarean section, will give you morphine in the spinal space or the epidural space, depending on if you have a spinal or an epidural. And morphine is really the gold standard for postoperative analgesia after cesarean, used all over the United States every day, hundreds of times. And we know that it, it provides really reliable and safe pain control for most people undergoing cesarean section for depending on the dose that you're using, about 12 hours, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. But if you have a patient who's been diagnosed with opioid use disorder, who's being maintained on buprenorphine, it's really hard for the morphine to compete with the buprenorphine in order for that woman to have good postoperative analgesia. And so one of the switches that we can do, and it's really simple, is that we can use hydromorphone instead of morphine because it's more competitive with the buprenorphine at the receptors that are involved. And so we incorporated that as a simple switch on our protocol, and we made sure that our machines here are all stocking the preservative-free version of hydromorphone. And we educated our providers to make that switch when they're caring for a patient that falls within our protocol. So that was really a simple switch that's part of our protocol. But there's also other switches that um, may seem trivial, but I personally believe have made the biggest impact on the women. I, at the beginning of the protocol, have whatever provider that's going to take care of these women go into the room, meet them, do our normal consent for care that we do with every patient that comes through, and say to them, I see that you're receiving buprenorphine. I think that that's really going to be an important part of your recovery here from having this child. If at any point in your stay with us, you don't get your normal dose at the time that you would take it at home. I want you to feel really motivated to speak up and tell someone so that we can keep you on track with your buprenorphine. And then anything that we give you outside of that buprenorphine is going to be used to treat the pain that is from the delivery episode, right? So that I feel like it's important to address because number one, it tells them that We understand their situation. We know that they're on buprenorphine. We are prepared to keep them on that buprenorphine throughout their stay. And that we're also identifying 
the delivery episode as additional pain besides their baseline pain that we're going to have to treat. So we're not just going to lump it all together. We're going to make sure that their pain control is specific to the episode that they're going to undergo. And I think that probably goes a long way in relieving someone's anxiety or fear that their pain isn't going to be addressed or taken seriously or that they're going to be having to fight for someone to believe them that they're in pain. Right. I feel like, and it breaks my heart sometimes, I'll come in to do an epidural for someone and I'll meet them for the first time and I go over their medical history briefly and any medications that they're taking and people tend to not want to verbalize that they're taking buprenorphine. And I really, I really want that to change. Like I really want women that come in here to be proud of the fact that they've been diagnosed with opioid use disorder and they're making great strides to deal with that. And, and I want them to be proud to say that they're on it because I think that it takes a lot of courage to go up against opioid use disorder and they deserve a lot of credit for that. So I do think that just having the conversation and having them realize that we've developed a protocol and we really want them to succeed after they deliver, that I think it goes a long way with their fear and their anxiety and any other psychological trauma that they bring with them into that delivery room that day. So we've talked about how you address patients initially and the changes you've made in the what gets added to their spinal. What about post-op? What happens differently post-op? So post-operatively, we've developed a rounding team that sees all women that deliver via cesarean that are diagnosed with opioid use disorder. And that simply means that a member of our team, so whether it's one of my residents or my fellows or my nurse anesthetist or even myself, will go and personally have face-to-face time with every single one of these women every day that they're inpatient following their cesarean delivery. And we'll talk about things like their pain control, what their pain scores are, what they feel like they're limited in doing. So is their pain so bad that they can't pick up their baby? Do they feel like they're having more trouble breastfeeding because their pain is out of control? And then we'll fine tune their regimen for analgesia. Maybe we'll add on a lidocaine patch near their incision site, or maybe we'll add on a muscle relaxant if it sounds like a lot of their pain is really just muscle cramping in the abdominal region. So we'll tailor what's bothering them to their plan. And I think that just knowing that we're coming in the visits that I've done myself, you just see so much relief in their eyes that someone's going to come, they're going to listen to exactly what's bothering them in that moment, what they're limited in doing to take care of this new baby, and we just make a plan together, and they know that we're going to be there every day to talk with them. I And I have, I mean, anecdotally, I have seen how this rounding makes a difference for people, how the... I'll 
either hear or like read in, in someone's chart that their pain is out of control. But then just last week, I talked to someone and she said, oh, yeah, but the anesthesiologist saw me last night and adjusted some things. And now I feel like I, I can go to the NICU and see my baby or whatever or breastfeed or whatever that they they need to do. And it is, I think, so important to for a person who is dealing not only with post-op pain, but try to make sure that they are there for their baby who may or may not be going through withdrawal symptoms or, you know, may or may not have other health issues that, that are going on, but then also dealing with breastfeeding and if there's DCS involvement and like all these potential stressors that just are kind of all coming together to, to make a potentially super stressful and anxiety provoking experience. So taking away that pain part of it um, as much as we, as we can is super important. These are things that we should focus on in this patient population in particular, but also in just every patient population, because we have really good data that shows us that people who are telling us that their pain control was awful in the post-delivery period, that they're having serious issues bonding with their newborns, they're having poor success rates of breastfeeding, and they're also developing postpartum depression at much, much higher rates. Not to mention, this acute surgical pain can very easily transition into long-term chronic pain, which is exactly what we're trying to avoid, especially in this patient population. Well, and, you know, I think this is such an interesting area where, as medical professionals, our use of opioid analgesias, analgesia in the past and overuse in many settings has really fueled the opioid epidemic we're in now. And it almost, it sometimes it seems like the pendulum has kind of swung the other way where we withhold opioid pain medication for people who are in acute pain, who've had a surgery because of these concerns about over-medicating or contributing to someone's use disorder. And so I think that's an education point I like to try to give to the residents or anybody else that someone with, by treating someone's acute pain, we are only going to, we're not going to cause their opioid use disorder to get worse because we're managing their acute pain. Like that is, but then also we have other things, we have other tools like the NSAIDs and gabapentin and non-medical things like abdominal binders and, and things that we can add. To. Yeah, pain is so interesting because you can have two people experience pain from the exact same stimulus and rate it, describe it, just really tell you everything about it in such different ways. And I think that in the future of anesthesia, for sure, hopefully in my career, we'll see more of a personalization of how we treat people pain-wise. Because I see people have a cesarean section here all the time, 
that go to postpartum and they don't they don't take a single opioid after their cesarean infection. They take Tylenol and they take Motrin. As someone who's had two C-sections myself, there is no way I could have gotten through it with only Tylenol and Motrin. There, there's no way I was, I could not get up to the bathroom. I was like, I was crying. I was miserable. So there has to be a difference between how I perceive that pain and how another person perceives it. And I, I really think that it has to do with signaling cascades and different biology of each person. I don't think that it's necessarily, oh, those women are stronger or I'm weaker. I think that it's really comes down to chemistry and biology inside our bodies. And we have a long way to go to understand like how that works. And I think the the more that we're able to understand that, the more we'll be able to individualize pain management and and really optimize pain management for individuals. Yeah. A big part of our protocol is a multimodal approach. So I think you hear that phrase thrown around in, in the anesthesia literature a lot, but it really does have a lot of benefits. So packed into our protocol, we have people on scheduled NSAIDs if it's safe for them to do so, and also scheduled Tylenol as well. And we're also doing a, a regional technique called a TAP block or a transverse abdominis plane block at the end of every cesarean section for these women as well. Historically, in the anesthesia literature, you will see the morphine intrathecal or epidural morphine as the gold standard for post-cesarean pain control, and they've compared it to these TAP blocks, so maybe getting rid of the morphine and doing the TAP blocks or doing the TAP blocks on top of the morphine, and there hasn't really been a lot of literature support for the TAP blocks making much of a difference when the morphine is there. They don't really give you any more analgesia. But in this specific patient population and with opioid use disorder, we're seeing that maybe there is there is a space for doing these tap blocks, even though we're giving the hydromorphone or the morphine. So we decided to include that in our protocol. And who knows how much of a difference it's making, but altogether, the whole package seems to be making a difference. So I think we'll keep it in there for now. Well, and. I just want to thank you because I just in my own personal practice have seen patients really talk about how supported they feel in patient, how their pain was taken seriously and how it really was a positive part of their, of their postpartum experience in the hospital. So I think that this protocol is really innovative and I just thank you for sharing it with us and being able to kind of spread this type of work to other institutions in the area and throughout the country maybe. Yeah, I'm so happy that the patients are having benefit from it because really nothing that we did in the protocol is like rocket science. There's no new discoveries or anything like cutting edge. It was just us coming together and saying, we're going to do this for every patient every time. And we're going to see if it makes a difference because we need to start doing something better because 
the pain scores that we were seeing from this patient population were just not acceptable for us. So we wanted to do something. Yeah. Well, I think it also shows how having that intention and going in and making sure that the patient knows that their pain control is important to the team. I think that goes a long way in establishing that relationship, that trust, decreasing anxiety, all of that's super important. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you for your time today. We really appreciate you joining us for our podcast and I am sure our listeners have enjoyed hearing about this topic. So thank you very much and thank you to everyone listening. All right, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic, or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.